I want to welcome you guys. I'm glad everybody came. It's good to be um, back with everyone, kind of along with what, what Travis was saying just a little while ago. I'd like to open up our service just with a dedicated time of prayer. Um, it is a heavy season, and we don't want to, we don't want to forget um, families and people around the, the country that are dealing with an incredible amount of loss this morning, even here in Richardson, just the thousands of people that showed up um, to honor the life of um, David Sherrard. That was just a, a beautiful picture of unity in our, in our city, and I want to remember them, and I want to remember all the different families that are in Parkland right now that are suffering and, and grieving the loss. And um, the message we're going to be talking about this morning is going to be dealing with some of these issues. And again, it was, it was never a, a planned or intended thing, but God has a way of kind of aligning certain things to deal with certain issues that I think are kind of relevant uh, but right now, I just want to pray for those victims and those families as we ask God to bless our time and his word this morning. So let's please pray with me. Father, um, we recognize that you're good. and We don't always see it. and We don't even always understand it. Um, but God, you're good and you're holy and you're merciful. Father, we know that you've walked this path before. You entered into our pain. You know this thing of death. You know what insults look like, you know what crying looks like, you know what loss feels like, Father, and I pray that you would be with these families that are experiencing all those different things this morning, not only there in Parkland, Florida, but all around the country. It's not the only tragedy that's taking place. Um, Father, I just ask that you would enter into those families' pain, uh, that you would wrap your arms of love and comfort and compassion around them. Father, they would find rest and solace in you, and really that the peace which surpasses all understanding, it really would guard their heart and their mind in Christ Jesus. Even though it makes no sense, God, I pray that your spirit would be able to give people peace that comes from you. God, would you raise up your church around these families that are in need? I pray that we really would be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ um, in times of darkness. Father, uh, even in the middle of all this pain, we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Father, come through your church, come through your body, Father. I pray that you would bring comfort, and I pray that you would bring relief. I pray that you would push back the darkness in Jesus' name, that you would push back all the darkness, God, that the gospel would go forward in might and in power, that it would continue to set people free, to give people a hope for a future, God. And I pray that you would do that in Jesus' name. And Father, as we open up your word today, God, I ask that your spirit would anoint it. I pray that you would teach us and make us humble receptive to everything that you want to show us today. God, that our gathering and that our church would be more and more glorifying to you. We love you. We give you this morning. It's all in Jesus' mighty and powerful name that we pray. Amen and amen. It's good to be again uh, with you guys this morning. Um, if you're new or first time in a long time, we're continuing in a series we've been in here, been in for quite a while called The Big Story, where we are going through the big story of Scripture, all the major stories and themes that are tying the one story of Scripture all together this morning, we're going to be in, Matt, in Micah chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles and want to go ahead and turn there, you can absolutely do that. Um, the passage we're going to be looking at today is probably one of the more simple and clear passages that we've been in in quite a while. But what it's going to do is it's going to open up an incredibly complex conversation about what biblical justice actually looks like and how that plays out here in the church. And so what I wanted to start off with this morning is really a question and it's a question that as I was thinking about this, this week, I was like, I actually want to hear some responses from you, because I'm actually kind of curious about how you respond to this. But the question um, that I was just wrestling with this past week is I'm kind of wondering, what social issues 
um, that you're seeing in the world today are near and dear to your personal heart. As you're looking at the headlines in the news and as you're reading about what's happening all around the world, and I want you to take, um, I, I want you to bypass the political affiliations that often is, uh, that come along with this kind of conversation. Like as a church, like we've got to think beyond politically. We've got to be thinking biblically more than we do politically. Beyond those things, I'm talking about social issues, people groups, um, which, which issues that you see actually break your heart today. And I know that there's a lot of things that we could be talking about, um, but a number of them off the top of my head, these are, this is kind of a list of a, a number of different issues in Dallas that churches altogether are going after hardcore. And uh, I'm just wondering uh, where your heart may be on some of these things. Refugees is a big one here in Dallas. And you know, for a long time, we've been very, very, um, uh, we've been very involved in refugee outreach for a long time. Uh, over 200,000 international refugees live here in Dallas, by the way. In 2015 alone, we resettled nearly 10,000 of them, 10,000 refugees here in Dallas, largely going over to a place called Vickery Meadow. A number of you guys were involved in those kinds of things, and so that's one issue that it could be. Uh, maybe it's racial inequality. Uh, this is a huge issue that's, uh, that, that's on the forefront of every conversation still today, and maybe that's something that really burdens you and kind of stirs up your passions and emotions today. And maybe it's sexual harassment or abuse. Uh, we talked about that a lot. Uh, it's in the headlines again a lot. Me too, hashtag, hashtag church too. It happens within the church as well, all around the board, and I've uh, been amazed at the number of conversations around, even around here inside these walls uh, where this is impacting people on a very personal level. Uh, maybe it's abortion, right? And maybe this is a, a major, major issue that's on the forefront of your heart. In 2018 alone, they're estimating somewhere around 700,000 babies that will be aborted this next year alone. Maybe it's poverty and homelessness. Maybe it's orphans and your heart is to adopt or to foster kids. Um, maybe it's human trafficking. Like this isn't just a thing that's taking place in Cambodia and around the world, but even here in Dallas, Dallas is one of the major central hubs in the United States for human trafficking, taking place here in our city. Uh, a few years back at the Passion Conference, which is an annual conference for young college students and stuff, uh, about 40,000 college students gathered at this Passion Conference, and they were able to raise about $3 million that weekend in order to fight uh, human trafficking all around the world. I love that. Praise God for millennials that are seeing kind of this um, the, the things that are taking place in the world and wanting God to do something about it. But in all seriousness, I, I, I really would like to hear, and I don't know if you have enough courage or anything to, to say something. Is there, would you shout out if something, maybe it's one of these things, maybe it's something else, because this is a small sample of just brokenness and things that are taking place in the world, but what social issues are near and dear to your heart? Bullying. I wrote that down here and did not put that up on the slide. Yeah, huge, isn't it? Anybody else agree with that? Like, that's one of the primary things that is on your heart. Mostly if you've got little kids right now, like, that's exactly where we, where we talk about all the time um, as parents here. What else? Pornography. Pornography. Huge issue. Crippling marriages and crippling our students and youth. And oh my gosh, the numbers are astronomical. What was that? Hunger. Hunger. Yes. Hunger. What else? Abuse. Huge one. What'd you say? Drug abuse. Drug abuse, yeah. Any other ones that you guys just want to shout out? Suicide. Suicide. Students, you guys are dealing with that a lot, aren't you? 
What were you going to say? I couldn't hear. I'm sorry. Sleepiness. Sorry, I'll, I'll try to do something about that in just a minute. It's a little dark right here, but uh, I love it. Dang, I got called out in front of everybody. Man. <laughs> it's a heavy situation, isn't it? It's a heavy issue. Say that again. Okay, attacks against the Bible. Okay, it's heavy. Violence in the media. Okay. Gun control, big issues. Gun violence all over the place, right? Not to mention just any kind of violence, right? I mean, the issues, we could keep going down the issues over and over and over again. And it was a, kind of a weird way to start off a message and stuff, but I wanted us to be thinking about this a little bit because it's just a heavy, heavy issue, isn't it? And it feels like it's, it's not necessarily anything that's new to the conversation this day and age. It's just kind of a different set of issues that we're dealing with today. But the reason I wanted to kick us off that way this morning is because what God is going to show us in this passage this morning is that, is that justice is on the forefront of his mind. And it's not just on the forefront of his mind, but it's on the forefront of his call for his church to be able to, to, be able to engage in these kinds of issues. And so this morning, all I wanted to do is just take us to this passage. And what you're going to see is it's a very, very simple passage, which is a very uh, simple um, uh, thing for us to engage in. But I just wanted to use it to kind of bring up this conversation of what, about, about what biblical justice may actually look like and how it plays out here in the church. So if you have your Bibles, Micah chapter 6, we're going to focus most of our time in, in verse 8. If you remember kind of where we are in the timeline of Scripture, where we are in the big story of everything, uh, what we're seeing in the Old Testament is it's God's message of redemption and restoration coming to uh, all of humanity, largely through his covenant people, the Israelites. And so that's what's taking place. Two major covenants guiding this whole thing, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, it's taking place in Exodus 19.5. Uh, This is kind of a picture of what the Mosaic Covenant is looking like. It's a conditional covenant that is going to facilitate God's relationship uh, with his people, the Israelites. And he says this, Now if you obey me fully, keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What are priests in the kingdom of God? Like, priests are the, the mediators between God and man, and that's what he's saying. Like, as you walk with me, you're going to be for me a kingdom of priests. You're going to be the mediators between my blessing coming to you and then going to the ends of the earth. And that's how it was supposed to operate, but it's not exactly how it all went down. We know this from Israel's past. There's all kinds of idolatry. There's all kinds of fallout. It's culminating in two major captivities that are going to take place in the Old Testament. 722 is the Assyrian captivity in the northern kingdom of Israel. And about 605 B.C., the Babylonians are going to come. They're going to be empowered at that time. They're going to take over the southern kingdom of Israel. Micah's prophetic ministry is going to be taking place in about 735 B.C., just before the Assyrians take the north into captivity. And so what we're going to be seeing here are kind of these, this last decade, these last years, just before God gives them over into judgment. And so let's pick it up here. In verse 1, here's what he says. He says, listen to what the Lord says. Stand up and plead my case before the mountains and let the hills hear what you have to say. Now this is going to be Micah speaking prophetically on behalf of God here in verse 2. Hear you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Please answer me. 
I brought you up out of Egypt and I redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you and also Aaron and Miriam. In other words, what's the deal? It, it, like, what's happening here? Like, why in the world? I, I've been faithful to you in every possible way. I've brought you out of Egypt. I've redeemed you from slavery. I've provided for you godly leadership. Why, where has this brokenness and this relationship taken place? Verse 6, now the voice is going to shift back to Israel, and Israel is going to say this. Well, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? It's going to be very similar to kind of like when you were in trouble with your parents as a kid, and um, you're kind of out doing your own thing, and you kind of say, okay, mom, dad, like, what in the world do you want from me here? Like, what, what, what do you actually want from me? That's the question that they're asking here. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? No. Verse 7, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil, olive oil? No, don't want your money. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Nope, it's not about the religious activity. Here it is, verse 8. Back to Micah again speaking on behalf of the Lord. Three little points all perfectly laid out. He's told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Three simple things. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with the Lord. That's it. There's three simple little points, and probably didn't know that Micah was the first of the Baptist prophets. Just kind of clearly laid out right there, just perfect for a note taker's dream. But that's all he says here is like, what do you want for me to do? Like, like God, what do you want us to do? And it, we, we're kind of hypothetically crying out to the Lord. Clearly, I'm under the judgment of God, and clearly there's this discipline that's coming in. But God, what in the world would you have us do? Just three simple little points. Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with the Lord. So I want to start talking about this. So what does it look like to do justice? And what are we even talking about when it comes to biblical justice? King Solomon is going to put it like this in Proverbs 28, very, very controversial passage. Here's what he says. He's going to say, evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord, they understand it fully. Now, how does that verse strike you? Evil people don't understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it fully. Does that even sound right to you? Because I'm kind of thinking throughout history, and I'm going, okay, well, like I can think of a number of different situations like where we have screwed up justice big time. Like I can think of a number of different times where we're sitting there going, okay, we've been on the wrong side of this issue over and over and over again. I can even look at the headlines today, and I can, I can point to different prominent God-fearing pastors, churches, and leaders who are covering up matters of abuse and enabling the people who are doing the abuse themselves. Like, so what this is not saying is that those who seek the Lord are always going to get it right. What he's saying is that those who know and seek the Lord are going to understand it more fully because true and perfect justice belongs to the Lord. I want to show you how this kind of works out in three simple ways, as I was just making fun of Micah for three simple points right there. But um, three things that seeking the Lord teaches us about justice, first and foremost, uh, very, very simply is, is this, that sin is the problem which ends up plaguing us all. An emphasis on this all language, which we've talked about a whole lot around here at the church, but like sin is the problem that plagues every single one of us. We know this, but sin does not care whether you're young or old. Sin doesn't care if you're rich or you're poor. Sin doesn't care if you're gay or you're straight, if you're Republican or you're Democrat, if you're male or you're female, if you're black or you're white or you're brown or you're red or you're yellow or you're blue or you're green, if that were even possible or a thing. Like we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and there is none who are righteous, not even one. And deep down inside, like this is Bible understanding 101, right? Like this is one of these things that I think most of us in, in here 
uh, agree with and understand. Uh, in all of my years of ministry, I've never heard or even talked with anybody who even denies this point. Uh, I, I talk with Caleb all the time. Caleb, are you a sinner? Oh, yeah. He even gets this right now at four years old. Like, he gets, yeah, I'm a sinner. I mess up and do bad things all the time. I think bad things. I, I, I get that point of it. Like, the disconnect comes in really believing that because I've sinned, it actually puts me in the exact same boat as everyone else in the world. I remember a number of years ago when I was working at Pine Cove, um, I was working with a bunch of eighth grade students, and uh, I, I made up this game. I'm trying to figure out how to communicate to junior high students, and it wasn't always effective and stuff, but we made up this, this game called uh, Who's More Deserving? And we're sitting around in our, in our uh, cabin trying to illustrate this point a whole lot, and, and we just started talking about, okay, who's more deserving of God's favor? And we started like, talking about like, all kinds of different uh, people that were in the headlines of that day. I think Bill Clinton was there, uh, Terrell Owens, Mother Teresa, uh, Billy Graham. We start talking about counselors. We start talking about people like inside of our own cabin, the different things that we did. And we, I was like, put up on a hierarchy, like who is more deserving of God's favor? And of course, they have this fun time kind of debating, well, you did this and you did that and that, blah, 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 all these different kinds of things. And we're kind of making a little bit of a game of it. And of course, the point of the matter is that there is none who are righteous, not even one person. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's exactly what we talked about last week. There's no such thing as a 9 a.m. or who is more deserving than the rest. In the scheme of things, we are all three PMers that are in desperate need of the mercy of Jesus Christ. And it's exactly what he's given to us uh, in, in his mercy. Uh, we are all Johnny-come-latelys that are in desperate need of his grace. And we hate that reality because we feel like I've done more and, I, and I've paid things back. And, and we feel like I've, I've elevated myself to this place where I'm more deserving than someone else. But in the courtroom of God, like justice begins with an understanding that we're all guilty before a holy God and in desperate need of his grace. In other words, it's not just those people over there who are having problems, but it's actually me too. Like it's not just that people group over there that are crippled by certain things, but it's actually me too. Like it's not just that horrific issue. Like this is a problem that, that, that I'm a part of. This is a problem that corrupts me too. Church, biblical justice, it comes from a place of empathy and not pity. Like biblical justice, it begins with this place of empathy and not pity. Like you know what empathy is? Empathy is the ability to understand and share the feelings of another person. It's exactly what the Pharisee was lacking in Jesus' parable in, in Luke chapter 18. It's the one I share all the time, but there's two men that go to the temple to pray. We've got the tax collector and we've got the Pharisee, and the tax collector is down on his knees and he's unable to lift his eyes and he says, be merciful to me, O God, a sinner, while the Pharisee is saying, okay, God, thank you that I'm not like these people over here. Like, uh, like it's a difference between those two things. Like, biblical justice comes from a place of empathy, not pity. It's a shared experience that you and I are all in the exact same boat, apart from the grace of God showing up in certain things, but you and I are in the exact same boat. It's not just that problem over there. This is a shared experience. It's not coming from a place of a high horse where I'm sitting there going, I've elevated myself to some place. It's sitting there going, um, we are in the exact same boat before a holy God, deserving of wrath and judgment about recipients of his incredible grace and his incredible mercy it's a simple one it's the one that we talk about all the time it's bible 101 sin is the problem that plagues every single one of us and no one's excused from that problem so yeah the wages of sin is future tense death and eternal separation from god but right now the the thing that we've got to understand is our sin is the thing that is ripping apart the fabric of god's 
original design, which leads us to number two. In other words, the thing that we're saying is that behind every single social injustice that we see, um, there's a greater sin issue behind the curtains. And then that's what we've got to understand here is that like, our sin is the thing that is ripping apart the fabric of God's original design. I remember a number of years ago, coming out of the college days, there was, a, there was an acquaintance friend of mine. Um, he decided to kind of graduate school, didn't exactly have a job at that time, and he decides that um, he's going to go and live with the homeless for a year out of, out of college. And um, he does that. He goes up to Washington State and decides that he's going to live on the streets. And it was a pretty tumultuous year for him. It was a year where he became incredibly disillusioned with all things God with a church, and he ends up walking away from the faith. He's looking around, and he's living with the homeless, and of course, his big thing, he comes back that year, and we kind of hear a little bit of his story, but he was just came, came back fuming and angry at God, going, Lord, how in the world can you allow these kinds of things to happen to these people over here? That was his big accusation. God, how in the world could you do this to these people over here? How in the world can your church and your people be so numb to these issues over here? And it was a thing that ended up ripping apart his faith. But what we've got to see is like none of these issues that we're seeing and none of these issues that we're uh, just observing in the world around us, like none of that is God's design. Like homelessness and abuse and racism, none of it was ever God's design. In Genesis chapter 1, when God created all that is, he created everything that is good. on, On day number six, he created mankind, and he looked at mankind, and he said, okay, this is very, very good, because he created mankind in his image, and he gave every single man, woman, and child inherent dignity and value as being an image bearer of God. That was God's design. When he created all that is, he created it good. He created it perfect, but somewhere in chapter three, temptation gave way to sin, and everything was destroyed. Like his initial design was perfect communion between humanity and all of creation. His original design was perfect communion between husband and wife. His original design was perfect communion between man and God. And in chapter 3, temptation gave way to sin and everything else was destroyed. In chapter 3, verse 7, check out how it all falls out. It says, then the eyes of both of them were opened. This is immediately after sin enters in the world. It says, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together, and they made coverings for themselves. In other words, in the first couple of chapters, they were naked, and they were unashamed. Sin enters into the picture, and immediately shame comes in and corrupts the entire picture. Everything breaks, and for the very first time, they are aware of, of how exposed they actually are. Verse 8, like they hear the footsteps of God walking around in the garden, and because of their shame, they actually try to hide from God, which never really works out very well, does it? But like they're feeling the shame, and they, and they try to actually hide from God. But that's what shame does. It always makes us want to run, and it always makes us want to self-protect and, and hide from the things of God. Beyond that, in verse 16, like, we come to find out that it's not just shame that enters in the picture, but like everything, every single corner and fabric of society is broken when sin enters into this picture. Like Spiritual, physical, and, and emotional rot begins to take place. Verse 16, I'm going to make your pains in childbearing very severe. This is, this is God giving the curse and giving the consequences of sin to Adam and Eve. I'm going to make your pains in childbearing very severe and painful labor. You'll give birth to your children. Your desire will be for your husband. He will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It'll produce thorns and thistles. 
And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Church, it's just massive, massive fallout from sin. And none of it was God's original design. Like None of this was how God created everything to be. We were supposed to be co-equal image bearers of God that were working together for the good of creation, for the glory of God's name. And now we're talking about things like domestic abuse and sexual assault and over a, nearing a 60% divorce rate that's tearing apart families and leaving kids being raised in homes that are broken apart. Like, like it was supposed to be blessing and bliss in the original intent of creation. And now we're talking about pain and abject poverty. Like it was supposed to be a fruitful garden full of beauty and provision. But now we're talking about homelessness and joblessness and a ground that does not want to be worked. Church, like everything that we're seeing is broken because we have brought in sin into the equation. We have rebelled against God. We have decided that we wanted things our own way. Everything that we are looking at, every corner of society is broken because we brought sin into the equation. Physically, we're all going to pass away one day. Spiritually, um, we are separated from God for all of eternity and deserving of hell. Emotionally, we are ripped apart inside by fear and anxiety and shame and anger and jealousy and all kinds of things. Even in Israel, it's exactly what's taking place. In chapter 2, look at what's exactly taking place here in Israel. This is what Micah is rebuking. Here's what it says in chapter 2 of Micah. Woe to those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their beds. When morning comes, they do it, for it is in the power of their hands. They covet fields, and they seize them and houses and take them away. They rob a man in his house, a man in his, his inheritance. Is this sounding familiar at all, right? I... I this doesn't stop. I, this is the same problems that we're dealing with today. Do the powerful ever take advantage of the weak? Like it, it was taking place way back then, and it's still continuing today. Chapter three is even worse, and we've talked about this extensively, like even in the judges' time. But like chapter three gets even worse. This is what's taking place in the covenant people of God in Israel just before God hands them over for judgment. Here's what it says. Um, I said this in chapter 3. Here now, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, okay? Leadership within Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate good and love evil, who tear off their skin from them and their flesh from their bones, who eat the flesh of my people, strip off their skin from them, break their bones and chop them up as for the pot and as meat in a kettle. Church, we're talking silence of the lambs kind of stuff here. And we talked about this. These were pagan practices. These were child sacrifices. And it was not like common throughout everybody there. But like horrific, horrific stuff. I mean, how in the world does this happen? Like how do you get there? As the people of God, how do you get there? Like Hebrews is going to say, let us encourage one another day after day. As long as it is still called today. So that none of us are going to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Like, that's what's taking place. There's two things. Like, that's what's, that's what's going on. Sin hardens our hearts to the things of God, and it deceives us about what's actually good. Like, that's what's taking place. It's just built up more and more and more, and I become hardened to the things of God, and it starts deceiving me about what's actually good, which is exactly what it says here in verse 2. You who hate what is good and love what's evil. Like, how in the world do you get to the point where we, you become a people where you're loving what's evil and you hate the things that are good? Like, how does that happen? How do, you, how do you get so comfortable tearing someone's skin from their bones? It makes no sense. Like, how do you get so comfortable killing babies? How do you get comfortable with the way that we treat our children? 
How do we call these things good? Like, how do we ignore real victims of abuse here? Like, how are we numb to abject poverty and hunger and to people living on streets? Like, how do we get to these places? Like, how do we hate what's good and love what's evil? It's all right here. Sin has this hardening effect where it it kills us and destroys us from the inside, and it completely corrupts everything that's taking place inside to where we are hardened to the things of God, and we were deceived to the things which are actually good. There is a much deeper sin problem that has got to be addressed behind every single social issue that we see. And church, the the, the point I want to make is like none of this was God's design, which is exactly why he sends Jesus into the picture in order to repair and to redeem everything that sin has destroyed, which leads me to number three. Biblical justice is exactly that. Biblical justice seeks to repair and redeem everything that sin has destroyed. Like spiritually, physically, emotional, the entire thing. Like biblical justice seeks to repair and redeem everything that sin has destroyed. And yes, there is a, uh, there is a priority given to the soul. Jesus is going to acknowledge this in Mark chapter 8. He's going to say, what does it profit a man if he gains the entire world but he forfeits his soul? In other words, like what good is a sandwich if that person doesn't have the free gift of eternal life? Like, what, what, what good is a jacket here, like, if they miss out on this free offer of salvation, this life-giving relationship that I've offered to them through the perfect life, death, and resurrection of my son? And, of course, the flip side of that, that equation is, is, this, is true, too. Like, what good is the gospel if no one's alive in order to hear it? Right? Like, like what, good, um, what good is this message of hope if, if they're not even in a place where they can actually receive it? Like, how is anyone ever going to believe that they're loved if no one's actually taken the time to show them that they are loved? A church like biblical justice always seeks to repair and redeem everything that sin has destroyed. It is always a both and to that question. It is never a either or. We go after them physically, spiritually, emotionally to love, care for, and protect, to redeem and restore everything that sin has broken. And it's been that way from the very beginning. We even see this back in the garden. Like in chapter 3, verse 15, do you remember what God says to Satan here in the curse? Check this out. It's just after sin enters the picture. Um, He's laying out the consequences of sin, and he says to Satan here in verse 15, I'm going to put enmity between you and this woman and between your offspring and hers. And then he's going to narrow this down. He's going to start talking about one of her offspring here. He's going to allude to a cosmic battle that's going to actually take place here between Satan and his offspring. And he's going to say this. He's going to say, he, meaning Jesus, is going to crush your head, meaning Satan, and you, Satan, are going to strike his heel. In other words, as soon as sin enters into the picture, a plan is in place to repair and redeem what's already been broken. Yes, there's consequences that are immediately laid out here, but there's already a plan in place. Uh, There's already a plan to redeem and to repair everything that has been broken, and it is all leading up to the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul's going to talk about this in Romans chapter 5. He's going to make this comparison between Adam and Jesus in order to show that in every possible way, Jesus is the better Adam... Uh, which has a better solution to the comprehensive problem and destructiveness of sin. And he's going to say things like, well, like Adam, Jesus was also human. Like Adam, he was also the first of his kind, meaning he was fully human and he was also fully divine. Like Adam, he was also tempted by Satan. But here's the incredible difference between Jesus and Adam. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, he didn't actually give in to sin. So 
when Jesus died upon that cross, he did not die um, as a penalty for his sin. His death was a substitute for the sin of humanity by which you and I could also then be redeemed. And it's exactly what God is referring to back here in the garden. When Jesus was hanging upon that cross and he was absorbing the worst of Satan's sting, what no one else knew was that at the exact same time he was crushing Satan's head and he was beginning to undo everything that sin had destroyed. And so when, when, when Adam ate from that tree and he ushered in death, Jesus died upon a tree, and three days later, he was able to usher in life. I, Paul's going to say in Romans chapter 5, verse 18, Just as one sin resulted in the condemnation of all, so also one act of righteousness resulted in justification and life for all people. You know what that word justification means. It is a, it is a, a judicial term, which means a declaration of righteousness. How did God go and accomplish justice for us, the guilty people before him in the courtroom of God? He gave us grace and mercy. Like, it is one act of righteousness resulted in justification and life for all people. In other words, church, everything that sin messed up, Jesus makes right. Like, spiritually, when we deserve death and condemnation before him, this one act of righteousness resulted in the opportunity for justification and life for any and all who would come to him and genuinely believe. And we're even talking about physical things like, like sickness and disease. Matthew chapter 11. People are wondering who Jesus is and check out what he says. He says, go back and report to John what you've heard and seen. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. And those who have leprosy, they are cleansed. The deaf they hear. The dead they are raised. And good news is proclaimed to the poor. In other words, the social justice deeds, the physical deeds are given to all of these different people. But also the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Like in James chapter 5, verse 16, he still encourages us to pray for one another because he still heals to this day. And in Revelation chapter 21, he says that when one day still future, when he returns, he's going to wipe away every tear from their eyes. There's going to be no more death, no more crying, no more mourning, no more pain. The first things have passed away. So, no, Travis is exactly right. We are in the middle of this now and not yet period. We're not quite there, but there is still redemption being had to this day where the miraculous power of God is coming in and redeeming and repairing things that have been previously been broken and destroyed by sin. And it keeps going. Like, what about power and abuse in the home? Here's what he says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Like, submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus Christ. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And he gave himself up for her. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Church, this did not happen in that culture in that day and age. Like, husbands did not love their spouses as themselves. It did not happen. That's just not how it ever worked out. Every single time that Jesus interacts with women in his time, he is elevating them well above the cultural norms of his day. Like the woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery, Mary Magdalene, the first apostle the first one who is sent to go talk about the resurrected jesus christ he's always elevating them above the cultural norms of his day racism galatians three twenty eight. there's neither jew nor greek there's neither slave nor free man there is neither male nor female for you are all one in jesus christ like what about the unborn jeremiah 1 5 before i formed you in the womb i knew you like before you were even before you were even this big in your mother's womb like i actually knew you it's not an accident. You weren't just a, you just weren't a, a little thing that was in there. Like, I actually knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you and set you apart, speaking to Jeremiah there. In Luke chapter 12, he says, I number the very hairs upon your head. There's intentionality, there's thought, there's love that's going into your design. Psalm 139, you are fearfully and you are wonderfully made and created by God. 
Like what about the poor and the oppressed? Matthew 25, 40. But truly I say to you, to the extent that you have done it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you've done it unto me. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the poor and oppressed of his day. To the extent that you've done it to one of these over here, to the extent that you've done it to even the least of these, as you consider them the least of these, you've done this unto me. In other words, the way that you serve me is by serving the people that are around you. The way that you love me is by loving the people who are around you. Like what about like, those who are brokenhearted? Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things and is yet without sin. In other words, Jesus has walked the path that you've walked. He came down here. He, he went there. He's gone through the things that we've been through. Like what about those who are living in addiction? Galatians chapter 5 is going to say it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. He has given us the gift and the power of the Holy Spirit. He has filled us with his presence, and he's given us everything that we need to be able to overcome addictive behaviors in this life. Like the, the, A little later on in the chapter, he's going to talk about the fruit of the Holy Spirit. As we surrender to the Holy Spirit, he comes and he produces his life inside of us. He sets you free from addictive behaviors. He sets you free from addictive sin patterns in your life. And he begins to produce things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. Like church, are are, are we hearing the heart of God anywhere in this? Like, are we seeing his, his heart and his compassion for humanity at all? Like, Jesus came to repair and to redeem everything that our sin had destroyed. Like, everything that we messed up, Jesus makes right. And the beauty of it all is that the work is not done. Like, he's still repairing and he's still redeeming everything that sin had destroyed. And yes, we're a long way away from Revelation 21, maybe. Who knows how long away we are, actually, but... Until that time comes, he is working through you and me, the body of Jesus Christ, to go and to be the hands and the feet, the legs, the heart, the arms, the compassion of Jesus Christ to a lost and broken world. Coming from a place of empathy, not a place of pride, but coming from a place of empathy and the shared experience of saying, you know what, apart from the grace of Jesus Christ, we're all in the exact same boat. So when we're talking about biblical justice, church, like, we're not talking about revenge. Like we're not talking about getting back at the people who did wrong. We're talking about carrying out the total and complete redemptive purposes of God in areas where darkness seems to have won. A little while ago, I was listening to a lecture about the incredible growth and impact of the evangelical church among the poor in Latin America. Uh, it was an incredible article. Um, of course, the question that comes up is, why now? What's the difference? Like, why is evangelical church, why are they exploding in Latin America? Because for years, the Catholic church had been there. They've been feeding people. They've been clothing the poor. And for some reason, people were leaving the Catholic church in droves. And here's what one sociologist said was the difference. And this is a, a, a non-believing sociologist who probably came into the faith probably a little bit later on. But here's what they said. The Protestant church has gone beyond just meeting physical needs. They've introduced biblical teaching and faith in the miraculous power of God into the healing equation. This kind of classical Christianity is really empowering. The poor are discovering for the very first time that whether you're upper class or lower class, everyone is equal before God, equally sinful, equally in need of God's grace, and equally loved and made righteous by Jesus Christ. 
So the poor now have hope in order to face their lives. Families are coming together again. Alcoholism is declining. Relationships are being healed through grace and forgiveness, and economic conditions are changing. Church, that is biblical justice. Physical, spiritual, emotional healing, all through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll never forget my first trip to Africa a number of years ago. It was the first time in a third world country, and I went over there, and I, had, I was very, very insecure about going. I had no idea what I was going to offer. I had no idea what I was going to be able to um, to bring to anybody that was there. And before I kind of went out into the community, I was talking with one of the pastors, and I was just asking the question. I was like, what in the world do I even say to people? Like, like what am I supposed to bring to the table? Because, I mean, they had every single physical need in the world. I'll never forget. He just looked at me, and he goes, people always need the hope of Jesus. That's it. He goes, get out of your head. Just preach Jesus. That's it. They need to know that there's hope, and they need to know that this is not as good as things get. Just preach the gospel and give us hope. Church, Israel forgot their purpose. Israel forgot their purpose. Like they forgot that the reason that God entered into this covenant relationship with them, they forgot that the reason that God lavished blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon these people was that they would take that blessing and that they would use that blessing for the good of the rest of the world and for the glory of Jesus' name, for the glory of God's name at that time. They forgot that purpose. So here in Micah, they're at the end of their rope, and it's just before Judgment Day, and they're crying out to God, and they're saying, Lord, what in the world do you want from us? And all he says is three very, very simple things. Do justice, because that's the thing that you've forgotten to do. Love mercy, because it's exactly what you've been given. And walk humbly with the Lord, because you recognize that we are all in the exact same boat. 